everyone, and thank you for tuning in to another episode of The Sun Also Rises here on KPCG-FM. To start off today's episode, I'd like to ask you to imagine yourself in a certain scenario. Think of yourself arriving home after what you felt was quite a productive day of work. And that morning before work, you had woken up early and had taken care of your biggest and most important priorities. You had also logged in a rigorous workout. And the day before, you had mowed your lawn and tended to all the rest of the yard work and housework. So you feel like all of that is well taken care of. And your family, or your roommates, or whatever the case may be, they're all out shopping. They'll be back in two hours. So it's just you in your house after work. And there you are staring in the face of a very rare and elusive creature, a block of unclaimed time. You can spend that time however you choose to, pretty much guilt-free. In that situation, after such a productive day, you could certainly feel justified in watching some TV or a movie or maybe a basketball game or football game. You could also feel justified in calling up some friends and heading down to the local watering hole to enjoy some conversation and a drink. Or you could even take a nap and wait for the family or housemates to get back home. Or you could spend that rare block of time working at a productive hobby. And in this episode, that's what we're going to talk about. And I hope that by the end of it, you feel inspired to invest more into a productive hobby, and to work toward becoming passionate and excellent at that productive hobby. A roommate of mine from several years back was a man who was unforgettable, in part because of how extremely uncomfortable he was when any significant amount of unclaimed time found its way into his schedule. I remember he would get home from work, and he would maybe play video games for an hour or so, but he couldn't really enjoy it. Something in him cried out against that. So he would stop and do some push-ups kind of erratically for a while, and then maybe compulsively clean his room that was already very clean. And it was never long before he would be on the phone. Hey, what's everybody doing tonight? Let's, let's go down to the beer garden. Let's go to the thirsty monk. I'm bored. I need to be around some people. When I lived with him, he actually ended up getting a second full-time job. Not because he needed the money. The second job only paid about half of what his real day job paid. But he just hated having that unclaimed time in his schedule. He did not know how to occupy it. He ended up bored out of his mind or sometimes maybe just drinking more than he wanted to. So he got the second job mostly just to fill that time. And I think that decision was admirable in some ways. But my former roommate would not have had to do that if he had been working to get his Foggy Mountain banjo roll up to tempo in time for his next band practice. Or if he'd been working on perfecting his Cabernet Sauvignon in time for the local winemakers competition. Or if he'd been working toward becoming proficient in Mandarin or German. If he had been serious about some kind of productive hobby, then he would not have been bored or uncomfortable with the unclaimed time in his schedule. In fact, he would have cherished that unclaimed time after work. And the science on this topic shows that having hobbies would have made him a happier, more fulfilled, and better-rounded person. 
To tell us a little about what science says regarding the benefits of having productive hobbies, we have a woman named Sarah Evans on the show today. She's working now as a teacher at Imperial Academy, but before that, she worked for many years as an occupational therapist. Thank you for joining us today, Sarah. Hi, Jeremiah. Thanks for having me. So what does the research say? Are there really measurable, concrete benefits that come with having productive hobbies in our lives? Absolutely. There have always been studies, of course, wanting to show that the way we spend our free time, because obviously we want to spend it productively, and we want to do things that are fun for us, so I think it's natural that scientists would study whether that really is beneficial. Has, uh, what, what do we want to be doing with that free time? And uh, what are what are some of the specific studies that you've encountered on that topic? There's been several. Um, I think one of the, the ones that really caught my attention was uh, the fact that there have been some studies showing that the more you participate in creative hobbies or creative outlets outside of work, uh, it actually benefits your work performance. So I think that's something that employers would be happy to hear, um, that their employees, if they can encourage them to take on Um, creative pursuits outside of work, it makes them better at their job, uh, even when their job is unrelated. So there was actually a study done by some psychologists at San Francisco State University, and they surveyed um, around 400 people, asking them about, uh, they all had different professional jobs, and then they um, compared those that had creative pursuits outside of work to those that didn't. So some of the results that they found based on both self-reporting and as rated by coworkers showed that those that had these creative hobbies were more likely to be helpful, collaborative, and creative in their job performance. Okay, well that's, that's really compelling. So if my former roommate would have uh, had a productive hobby, it would have actually made him more productive at his job then. Very likely. Yeah, absolutely. And I think to the extent that we oftentimes worry that our side pursuits or our hobbies cost money. Yeah. I suppose if that's really one of the factors holding you back, if you think about it from a financial perspective, if you actually think of your hobbies and your side pursuits as making you better at your, your real job, the job that pays you, perhaps you could even balance the fact that, well, maybe you'll get a promotion at work because you start doing better at work. Wow. So some, some actual uh, economic implications Possibly, there too. yes. <laughs> okay. Well, that's, uh, that's really compelling. Do you have any other, any other numbers that, that speak on this subject? Well, one of the other really interesting things that I found along those same lines was the fact that one of the most uh, influential employers, or certainly an employer we would all look to, um, Google, uh, actually started giving their employees 20% of their work time that they could invest in fun or passionate side projects or side hobbies. 20%. Uh, 20%, <laughs> yes. Yeah. So obviously Google believes that that is worth the investment, that they get more out of the 80% that remains to them when they encourage their employees to focus on something else uh, for 20% of their time. So they obviously see a lot of value in a well-rounded person who's pursuing you know, pretty actively some productive hobbies. Right. And I don't know to what extent, like they call it side projects, which a lot of times that is talking about something not directly related to your work. Right. They might have still put some stipulations on what yes. they wanted it to be, um, but to the extent that it could certainly still be enriching and beneficial. Um, and then the health benefits in terms of reducing stress, there's been mm-hmm. studies that show how much the uh, employees have lower blood pressure and um, better health results. So it might even be reducing their health care bill, wow. something that could certainly really help a a corporation as a whole. Huh, very interesting. Um, Before we let you go, would you mind telling us what some of your main hobbies are? 
Oh, that's oh, <laughs> one of those things where I feel like I'm jack of all trades, master of none. <laughs> um, I think because hobbies can cover a lot of different areas, there's lots of categories of hobbies, obviously. Um, some of the more enriching ones, like studying language, like you'd mentioned in your example, um, or participating in sports or physical activity, social activities, creative hobbies, people who knit and things. Um, I've tried to make sure that I have hobbies in a lot of different areas um, because I know that the science says that these different categories of hobbies provide you different benefits. Um, so one of my real passions kind of covers multiple of those categories, and that's ballroom dance. Hmm. So how, how long have you been interested in that? I've been interested for a very long time. I was in gymnastics as a child, and of course, floor routines, those have a dance component in, in gymnastics. So since I was young, I've done something with dance. Um, but ballroom dance has been about more serious study about the last six years. Oh, okay. And uh, and I know you also mentioned that you have an interest in bread making. Absolutely. <laughs> yes, that's definitely one of my um, culinary creative outlets, um, cooking and baking, but particularly making bread. So there's a lot of uh, I'm very, I'm very science-minded, so in a way this fits my science background. Yeah. It's kind of like kitchen chemistry, uh, baking more so than, than cooking. You can kind of wing it when you're just cooking something on the stove. You can just decide to change something on the spur of the moment. Baking, not so much. It's very much about the chemistry of what's going into it. Um, and I do a lot of sourdoughs, which take multiple days and planning, and um, they're a little bit more temperamental. So I'm testing you know, humidity and weighing ingredients because obviously in the summer there's more humidity and that changes how it behaves. Hmm. Um, so there's a lot of components that keep it very stimulating. And you mentioned that your uh, prowess with bread making actually earned you a nickname. <laughs> <laughs> yes, yes. I was called the bread whisperer, the dough, the dough whisperer. So I had a starter, actually, a dough starter for sourdough that I had named. And there's a famous um, flour company that's called King Arthur. And so my starter was named Arthur. And it was like a pet. You feed it. You take care of it. You, you monitor its temperature. You're constantly aware of this living, growing thing that you're fostering on your kitchen counter. So you had the, the subtle touch required for that. <laughs> Well, Hopefully. A, <laughs> the bread usually turned out good. Well, that's a really impressive list of hobbies. It sounds like you probably never have to worry about being bored with, with a long list of interests like that. And uh, thank you again for coming on the show today and for sharing all of that with us. You're quite welcome. Now, I know that many of us dabble in many different hobbies. You open up the hallway closet and out falls everything from your old lacrosse equipment and your stamp collection to your cycling helmet and your didgeridoo. And that's fine to have a kind of a normal, superficial interest in dozens and dozens of hobbies. But what we're really talking about in this episode today is different from that. This is more about finding two or three or maybe four productive hobbies and working to really commit yourself to those and to make those hobbies part of your identity. If you think about your identity, first and foremost for many of us would be our religion, that really defines who we are above all else. Secondly, for many of us, would be our family life. We are husbands and fathers and uh, wives and mothers. We are brothers and sisters and so on. And third, for many of us, would be our profession. But number four, for a great many of us, really could be or should be, you know what? I am that person who is passionate about wildlife photography or writing short stories, or building go-karts, or rebinding old books, or becoming an expert in all the national anthems of the world, or frisbee golf, or latte art, or Irish dance, 
or playing the accordion or growing carnivorous plants or kayaking or learning Hebrew or videography or restoring classic cars or brewing the finest India Pale Ale microbrew this side of the Ganges. For many of you listeners, you may already know for the most part what your productive hobby or hobbies are. Maybe you've dabbled with a lot of different things over the years and you've found which ones you have an aptitude for, and you're already becoming excellent at a productive hobby. And if that's your situation, I would just say go even deeper. Commit to it a little bit more. Of course, that has to be done only as time permits and with balance, knowing that this is far from the highest priority in our lives. For other listeners, maybe you've never really considered how important having a productive hobby is. Maybe you've never really taken the time to get beyond kind of an entry-level or intermediate-level interest in your hobbies. And if that's the case, no matter your age, you can and should become excellent at a productive hobby, even if it's a very technical one like learning a second language. Just think of the example of the modern nation of Israel. It was formed in 1948, and Jewish people from all over Europe and the world immigrated there. And very few of those people spoke Hebrew before that time. But they all moved to Israel, and they built a government and decided that all business and education and science and government and everything else would be conducted in the Hebrew language. So suddenly you have people who previously spoke only Russian or German or English or Polish or French or whatever it may have been, and suddenly these people are designated to be the foreign minister of Israel or Israel's ambassador to Spain or all these other high-ranking government positions, and they had to attend and participate in meetings that were conducted solely in Hebrew. And many of these people were 60 or 70 years old when they started learning the Hebrew language. But if you look into this account, it's really fascinating because most of them came to command the Hebrew language pretty powerfully within just six months or a year or so. And of course, for them, it was not a hobby. It was more of a necessity. But I think that example should still dismantle a lot of our excuses and a lot of our uh, resistance. It should give us some encouragement about the plasticity and the capability of our brains, even if we are older. I had the opportunity this past weekend to speak with one of the more senior members of the local community here in Edmond, Oklahoma, about his hobby. And it's a project that he just took up not too long ago. And we've got a clip here that we'll play in which he explains a little bit about hobbies in general and his hobby in particular. This man's name is Mr. Willie Coates, He's in his mid-70s and sharper than ever. Here's the clip. Well, having a hobby is very important to everybody, I believe. Since I was a child, I grew up in the Old South, and uh, we didn't know what hobbies were. And they didn't have a Hobby Lobby store either at that time. I've always liked, loved writing, but I was never trained at writing. And I still love writing, and just this past week, I went back into a lot of old files that I had, and I found that I had written prodigiously in the 1960s. A lot of poetry, 
And I was really amazed at what I had done at that time. And I still like writing. And one of the ministers had told me that I should write my memoirs because I came from such a different society and culture than we have today. I didn't want to do it, uh, but he kept after me, and so I finally, in 2012, acceded to do it. I've written 40 or 50,000 words probably now, and uh, we're heading toward the end of it. But it has brought back many memories and been very helpful, even spiritually, to see where I've come from over the past 50 or so years. I would encourage anyone, especially the senior citizens, to consider recollecting their past and putting it into writing, because that way it's preserved for the younger generation. I think that would be helpful to those people. In fact, I was told to do this for the sake of my children because they knew nothing of what I grew up with. It's helpful to both the young and the old. It uh, brings back a lot of memories that are good and a few that are not. And it helps you to, to uh, have a better perception of what you really are. Uh, and looking back at those past events, and how you grew up, and the people you were associated with. It's always good to feel that you're accomplishing something. And uh, if you're ill and uh, handicapped, as I have become, it certainly helps if you have some project that will keep you active and will keep you from just deteriorating. And uh, it's, just, it's, just, it's just very helpful having that. I've set a goal to have them finished by the end of this year. So there is a pretty powerful testimonial, I think, about some of the benefits of having a productive hobby in your life. And I've had the pleasure of reading quite a lot of Mr. Coates' memoirs, the fruits of his hobby that he was talking about there. And I can tell you that it is very powerfully written and highly educational and interesting. This book that he's writing about the fascinating life that he has led really will be a valuable gift not just to his children that he mentioned there, but to anyone who reads it. And if you're interested in getting an update on that project once it's completed, just send an email to the show to tsar at kpcg.fm, and uh, we'll, we'll try to keep you in the loop there. Now, one thing that I'd like to spend a little bit of time clarifying is the word productive. We've been repeating that word quite a bit on this episode because not all hobbies are productive. And if they're not productive, then they're probably not worth investing a lot of your time and effort into. If we are going to work toward becoming more passionate and more excellent at a hobby, we really need to guarantee that it is a productive one. So to know if a certain hobby is productive, you should be able to answer yes to these two questions about it. Number one, is this something that I can do with my might? Can I do it with my might, with my focus and my strength? Can I get better and better at it over the years? This question is going to eliminate passive hobbies. You know, think about Netflix. It's very hard to watch Netflix with your might. You can open your eyes up really wide and maybe really press those remote control buttons extra hard. 
scoot a little closer to the TV. But that's not doing anything with your might. It's a passive hobby, which means it's not really the type of hobby that you should be laboring to become an expert in. The second question is, is it something that I can use to give to others? All this know-how and knowledge and expertise that I'm working so hard to acquire, is it just for me? Or does it allow me to enrich and enhance the lives of other people? A man named Jordan Ellis is a student at Herbert W. Armstrong College here on the same campus grounds as the KPCG Studios. And his main hobby is creating music. He composes music, he performs it, he records it. And all of the music in today's program is music that Jordan wrote and performed, and he gave it to us to use. That's an excellent hobby that he has, and it's one that he really is able to give to other people with. Now, when you're considering the second question, I would caution you to beware your human nature. You know, with the right kind of mental gymnastics, we can sometimes convince ourselves that we are being noble and selfless and generous when we're actually maybe being lazy. You know, we can, we can say, by using my unclaimed time to binge watch these five Netflix shows, I'll be able to better contribute to uh, conversations around the water cooler at work with my coworkers. But that's not really giving to anyone in a worthwhile way in most cases. However, a hobby can be one that enables generosity without it being something as concrete and direct as creating music for people. Or painting, for example, in which you give other people your paintings. Or beekeeping, for example, in which you give other people honey. Those are all excellent hobbies, and certainly the kind that do allow you to enrich other people's lives. But there are, there are also ways to give that are less direct. For example, there are some Japanese families whose main hobby is cultivating bonsai trees. And some of the trees are 800 years old or even older. And in each generation, the father teaches his son the art and science of bonsai, how to keep the trees alive and healthy without letting them grow large. And then that son teaches it to his own son. And so it has gone for a dozen generations in some cases. In those cases, the family hobby is giving to that family. The father of each generation equips his son with a skill set and with a sense of tradition and purpose. And many productive hobbies can enable giving in other ways. You know, what, what if your hobby is becoming an expert in World War II Pacific theater history or some other chapter of history? I think that can be a very productive hobby. And you can certainly give to others with a hobby like that by sharing your valuable findings in conversation and possibly even by writing up your discoveries as articles or blog posts. In the case of learning a second language, that's a terrific way to give to others. With a new language, you can reach out to people who are, you know, somewhat linguistically isolated and you can interact with them and build friendships with them in ways that those other people benefit from immensely. So even if your hobby doesn't necessarily yield tangible products that you can give to others, it can still be something that enables giving in other very important ways. 
When we come back, we'll speak with a man who is known for his work writing for the Philadelphia Trumpet and as a regular panelist on KPCG's Trumpet Hour show. But today we'll be learning about another side to this man, his work after work, his hobby. You're listening to The Sun Also Rises on KPCG. We'll be right back. You're listening to The Sun Also Rises here on KPCG. In today's episode, we're talking about hobbies. We're discussing the value of having productive hobbies in our lives. And for this next segment, we have a man who you probably know as one of the panelists on the very informative Trumpet Hour program here on KPCG. You may also know him for his articles in the Philadelphia Trumpet News Magazine. His name is Andrew Miller. Thanks for being on the show today, Andrew. Yeah, thanks for having me. Well, many of our listeners would know a lot about you from what you do from, you know, 8 to 5, Monday through Friday. We know that you're busy writing those articles and discussing current events. Um, But today we want to get to know the non-professional Andrew Miller and learn what you do outside of work with your unclaimed time. And I know that you have a, a very interesting and somewhat unusual hobby, I think, that I had never heard of before, and I think it's an excellent one. Would you explain what your hobby is and what it entails? Uh, yes, it's aquascaping, which uh, I guess it's um. there are many forms of aquascaping. It's a broad hobby, which basically just means underwater gardening. Uh, for me in particular, I was an environmental biology major, um, although I've never actually worked in environmental biology after graduation. So this is kind of a creative outlet for me to be able to uh, um, construct like biotopes would be the word, as biotope would be biotope aquascaping. It's a particular subset where uh, you basically pick a natural environment, uh, like a river, lake, uh, even coral reef, could be anywhere on the world, just pick it, and then uh, try to reproduce it in its, in its natural form in your living room. So when most people have aquariums in their homes, they choose fish because this one's beautiful, this one here is good at keeping it clean, uh, this one is a, is a beautiful plant. But with your aquarium, everything is designed to mimic one specific ecosystem. Right. I mean, a lot of times with people who uh, who like to keep an aquarium in their house, you'll go and pick maybe what's on sale or pick based on color. Or there's mm-hmm. many ways you can pick whatever fish you want. Right. But uh, the one in particular I have uh, set up in my living room right now is, um, is a 55-gallon aquarium based on the Orinoco River on the border of Colombia and Venezuela. So okay. I've picked plants that are indigenous to that region. I've picked fish that are natural to that region. And then I've tried to work the driftwood and all that. So it actually looks as close as I can get it within a reasonable price to the actual Orinoco River. I've I've seen yours, and it's really beautiful. And it's fascinating just to know that everything in that aquarium is designed to mimic that you know that river there in, in Latin America. And, uh, and I understand that you've also... Uh, been making one for some other people? Right, I've got actually some stuff in the back of my car right now. I'm heading over to my sister's tonight to uh, to start work on another one that's based off uh, Lake uh, Malawi in West Africa. Oh, okay. So it'll be more of a, like a rockscape. Wow. Will, will there be any, any fish or plants in that one, or is it just... No, much? it'll be a couple of weeks before I get them in there, but we like a mumbuna fish. So they're they're one of the more colorful freshwater fish. That's why I chose them for for her house. But it's also just a good creative outlet for me because I've been able to do like a lot of reading on what the the African Rift Lakes and try to figure out, okay, what's the best way that I can try to make something that's going to look kind of like that. Yes. Yeah. And and I know that I've even 
really thoroughly enjoyed being able to visit you at your home and have you walk me through uh, the particular aquarium that you're cultivating right now. And uh, I just think that's a, a really excellent hobby and one that I'm glad you've devoted time to. <laughs> yeah, it's, it's definitely fun. Well, thanks very much for coming on the show today and uh, for sharing the fascinating details of your hobby with us. All right, thanks for having me. I'm Jeremiah Jacques, and we are coming to the end of The Sun Also Rises on KPCG. You can hear us at 101.3 on the FM dial here in Edmond, Oklahoma. And the live stream is available anywhere in the world if you just type kpcg.fm into your internet browser. We really appreciate you listening today and hope that you'll send us your feedback and comments. Just email tsar at kpcg.fm. And I'd like to thank Sarah Evans for coming on the show today and also Mr. Willie Coates and Andrew Miller. I'd also like to thank Jordan Ellis for providing such a, a rich tapestry of music there and the KPCG operations manager, Dwight Falk, and the production assistant, Abraham Blondeau. And I'll leave you with the words of the American author, Stephen Johnson. Legendary innovators like Ben Franklin and Jon Snow all possess some common intellectual qualities, a certain quickness of mind, unbounded curiosity, but they also share one other defining attribute. They have a lot of hobbies. Thank you again, and please tune in again next Thursday for another episode of The Sun Also Rises.